Okay, let's take a Bible tonight and open it up to Psalms. We uh, finished Psalms 110 last week. So we're going to pick up on a new one, Psalm 34. This is a psalm written by David. It's written by him at a strange time in his life. And we're going to talk about how to have uh, spiritual influence over other people by the way that we live. Now, the reason I say that is, when you think of David, what comes to your mind? Giant killer? King of Israel? Uh, things like that. A psalmist? How many psalms did he write? A bunch. A bunch of them. Um, do you ever think of David as a man after God's own heart? It's a good one, isn't it? But he also was an adulterer, wasn't he? He also uh, had Uriah the Hittite murdered. And there were other things that he did that displeased the Lord. And yet that's not really the first thing that comes to mind when we think of David. In fact, <coughs> we're going to read about a situation that is really kind of weird that most people, even if they've read it, they don't really readily think of this. And so uh, before we go to Psalm 34, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now David is a young man, and you remember after he killed Goliath, and he becomes a national hero, and he becomes uh, King Saul's son-in-law, and uh, you know, all of that. He's living in the palace, he's eating at the king's table, and uh, he's a warrior, and he begins to fight, to learn to fight. He's in the military, and uh, then something happens. Saul gets very jealous of David. Now, David's not the king yet. He had been anointed by Samuel years before, but now he's in the palace, and the Lord is blessing him. And when they would come back from battle, you remember the number one song, on uh, Israel's top 40, Casey, yeah, probably not Casey Kasem, but you know. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his, what? Tens of thousands. Man, that just ticked Saul off. And Saul was mentally unstable and having demon problems even. And uh, Saul would just, out of nowhere, just throw a spear at David. Never hit him, but uh, that, that would be frightening nonetheless. And David had to kind of lay low. And he had to figure things out. And you remember he was good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And boy, that really made Saul mad. He said to Jonathan, what, do you want this dog to take your place? You know, who does he think he is? And yet Jonathan knew that the hand of the Lord was on David. And uh, to his credit, Jonathan was more than willing to give up the throne for David because he knew that was the will of God. And so David and Jonathan worked together and they worked out a plan as to whether it was safe for David to be around the palace or not because Saul was kind of manic depressive and depending upon his mood, sometimes David was great and other times he was trying to kill him. And, you know, one of those times that, saw, that spear that Saul threw might find its mark. So David was careful, and uh, he finds out from Jonathan that he's got to run for his life. 
Now, don't think of David as being, you know, like a middle-aged, seasoned warrior at this point. He's a very young man still, and uh, now he's having to run. To be the most wanted man in Israel, to have the king and all of the king's resources coming after you, and it's not just going to last for a week or two. David's going to basically be on the run for a decade of his life, hiding in caves and all of those kind of things, when actually he meant no harm to Saul. And uh, even when he had the opportunity, remember those stories where Saul would be in a cave and David would go in there and cut off a part of his garment to show the king, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Well, David has gone now to Nob. And while he is there, he goes and sees the priest. And uh, he talks to the priest and said, I'm hungry. And uh, what, what do you have? And that's when the priest said that he would give David and his men the showbread. Wasn't supposed to do that, but it was a matter of life. And the Jews have always had the idea that saving life was the most important thing. And they even, in a toast and different blessings, they'll say l'chaim to life. That's what, they were, uh, what that means. And so uh, David's life was spared by this priest. Jesus even made reference to that story. Remember when the Pharisees were so legalistic about observing the Sabbath, David brought up the fact that the priest gave David the showbread off of the table there. And so David then says, look, I had to, I'm here on business for the king. That's not really true. But he didn't want to get the priest in trouble is the way that I take that. And uh, he also says to him, and I had to leave in such haste, I don't have any weapons. Do you have a spear or a sword here? Can you imagine somebody coming to the church and uh, they are talking to me and they say, you got anything to eat? And I say, yeah, we can help you and maybe we give them a gift card or something like that. And uh, then they say, you got a gun around here? I don't have any weapons. Wouldn't that be a little bit strange to think about that? And yet that's what David does. Now, what kind of weapons did they have back then? David asked for either a spear or a sword. Got a spare spear or sword laying around here, priest? And uh, David probably was thinking that maybe the priest had his personal sword there or something like that. And uh, the priest says something a little bit surprising. He goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. It's the sword that belonged to Goliath whom you slew. I wonder why they had that and why they kept it. Was it as a memorial of Israel's great victory and how the Lord delivered them that day? And not only how the Lord delivered the armies of Israel, but, oh my word, Goliath, a seasoned warrior, a big guy and well-skilled in the use of a sword and a spear who had told David, you're an insult to me when he came before Goliath. This is an insult. What, what am I, a dog that this kid should come and try to fight me? I'll feed your flesh to the birds, remember? David said, you come against me with a spear and a sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I win, you lose. I know he didn't say that last part, but you, you know what he was saying. And so uh, with his slingshot, Goliath is knocked out. The stone found its mark. 
and he falls down and then David takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off and then takes that to King Saul. So apparently they kept the sword as some type maybe of a memorial to that great day and uh, it also should have been a reminder to David when the priest brings that sword out this was a sword that should have killed you, but your God delivered you even from the hand of the giant. Well, while David is there, I mean, this is kind of like any good spy uh, story or anything like that. David, having eaten some of the bread and, and having the sword now, he's got to be feeling just a little bit better, a little bit more confident. The priest is actually kind of on his side and then all of a sudden, out of the worshipers that are there, he looks. Now remember, David has been at the palace for a while, and he recognizes someone. And he goes, that's Doeg, D-O-E-G. He is one of the king's men. He's a spy. And he will report me if he sees me. So David doesn't want to confront him. He doesn't want any uh, kind of a showdown or anything like that. He's got to get out of Dodge. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David takes off. And then something very strange in my mind happens here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. Fearing discovery, the Bible says that he flees to Gath. Gath, G-A-T-H. Does that ring a bell? Well, it should that was Goliath's hometown. Now, if there's anywhere you don't want to go, if you are the killer of the Philistine champion Goliath, it's probably to his hometown. In those days, the pagans were like the Jews. Tribes inhabited various parts of the land and various towns. And if that's the case, that means that probably... Nearly everyone in Gath was related to Goliath. Guess what story they probably knew well and knew by heart. They'd heard the story of how the Philistines had the Israelis scared to death, ready to run, and they were ready to defeat everyone because of one man, and that is Goliath. And Goliath every day would taunt the armies of Israel and say, who wants to fight me today? Any of you man enough to fight me? And they were all terrified. Until that day that the junior high kid comes with lunch for his big brothers. And is checking on them. He's appalled that the armies of God, the armies of Israel, are afraid to fight this. And so he goes and he is the one who kills Goliath. Now, if Israel knew that story, you know that in Gath... They knew that story. David is a marked man. Makes me wonder, why did he go there? What did he think he was going to do? As a Jew, he would not blend in. And don't you also think, too, that if he was banking on the fact that, well, I'm older and I'm bigger, probably has a beard now by this time, maybe nobody will recognize me. Well, what do you think they're going to say about the sword that is in his scabbard. Goliath's sword. And those weapons were usually identified by various markings and things like that. And somebody is sure to notice that. And so 
He goes there, and the Bible says, look at uh, 1 Samuel 21.10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul. And I get the idea there's a little bit of panic. This guy that's normally cool, calm, and collected. There's something about this situation that has him panicking. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, well, our worst suspicions were true, isn't it? Look at this. Is this not David, the king of the land? Now, he wasn't literally the king, but the stories were going around that he had been anointed uh, by the prophet Samuel, that he was kind of the one who was coming up according to the Hebrew God. Is this not David, the king of the land? Or at least functionally that way. Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was... Now notice these words here. New King James Version says, Very much afraid. Now this same guy that could stand before Goliath that had all of the warriors of Israel terrified and yet as a kid he could stand before him. You come before me with a spear and a sword. I come before you in the name of the Lord of hosts. What happened to that guy? And I think that sometimes we forget these people are as human as we are. How many experiences have you had with answered prayer. Oh, the Lord came through and He provided our needs and our family aid or a job was provided or a paycheck was there or a job came in. And it's so great and we tell the people at the church and we praise the Lord and we hold hands around the dinner table and thank the Lord for His provision until the next time. And it's as if we kind of think that God... Uh, he, he used up all the gas in his tank on that last miracle. He didn't have much now. What's going to happen? Don't we kind of act like that? We act like God only has so much that he can do. And he's probably, he did it before, but probably not now. Or maybe I've sinned more since that last time and I'm not worthy of a miracle now. Well, you never are. For one thing, they're all by grace. I mean, any number of things could happen. So I wonder what happened to David that the giant killer is now afraid of a king who apparently was no giant. So the Bible goes on to tell us, verse 13, this is David just doing the best he can. You know, you know how you get in trouble when you just do the best you can? When you forget about the Lord, you forget about the Lord's power, you forget about the promises of God. And at this point it seems as though David has forgotten that he is destined to be king of Israel and that hadn't happened yet. Now if God gives you a promise and it hasn't happened yet, then one thing you know, you're not, you're not close to dying. That promise has got to be fulfilled. But David, apparently he's like us and he just forgot about it. So verse 13... He changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva, his spit, fall down 
on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And that ends chapter 21. So thus is the great story of the giant killer, the military man that has slain tens of thousands of the Philistines, better even than King Saul. And what is he doing now? He has spit dripping from his beard. He's scratching and clawing on the gates like he is crazy and out of his mind. And Achish the king says, this guy is disgusting. What did you bring him here for? Get him out of here. I'm glad the story doesn't end there. David lost his mind. David acting like he's insane. David that has no resources other than his wits where he acts like a crazy person. And in the East, to have saliva, to be drooling, let's call it, was considered particularly offensive and dishonorable. And in this case, the king said he has lost his ever-loving mind. This guy is no threat. Don't worry about him, just get him out of here. Well, David takes advantage of that situation. And when you get to chapter 22, he flees from all of that. Uh, can you imagine the people asking, how in the world did you escape? Well, David doesn't want to tell that story. David doesn't want to go there. That's not the kind of thing that a man of God does. That's not the kind of thing that a giant killer would do. That's not the kind of thing that makes people want to say, hey, let's make this guy our king. Be drooling at his next press conference. Losing his mind over things. I mean, think about what all that says and what all that means. You want this guy leading you into battle? You want this guy? I mean, what if it's true? This is the kind of thing where kings kind of live or die <coughs> by their reputation. <coughs> Pardon me. And if anybody senses weakness in a king, that's the time that they move in. How's the only way that you can become king? Well, the king has to die. Even Solomon is not going to become king until David dies and Boy, we're a long way from that. But there would be any number of people who would love to assassinate the king, right? And so this is the kind of thing that maybe David did it, but he doesn't really want him singing about it. He doesn't want him talking about it. This is not the kind of thing that he is going to brag about. And yet, this is written, Psalm 34 is written in the context of all of this. So what? happened and is David saying praise God I thought to act like a crazy person no he doesn't say that at all it doesn't even bring it up there was a pastor I heard that uh, he was uh, a generation or so older than me and he pastored in rural Arkansas and back in those days it was pretty bad and he talks about going to a family's house after church and he said and it was just filthy in there 
and uh, flies, no screens on the windows, flies landing everywhere on the table, on the food, all of that. And he doesn't really know what to do, so he kind of picks at his food and eats what he can and, and uh, just is kind of grossed out by the whole situation. Well, then the woman comes and she goes, Oh, I made a pie for you, preacher. And then she starts flicking dead flies off of the meringue of the pie. And he was going to say, I'll just pass on dessert. And she goes, and don't uh, try to get out of this because I made this special for you. I happen to know this is your favorite pie. And she cuts him a piece and puts it on his plate. And he says, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. But my doctor says I can't have meringue. Puts it off. Somebody asked him about that and said, don't you feel bad that you told a lie? And he goes, no, I praise God that I even thought of it, right? <laughs> now, nah, it's a funny story, but that's kind of where David is. Is David going in this psalm, praise you, Lord, that I thought to drool and act like a fool and act like a madman and disgrace myself and disgrace you. Praise you, God, that I thought to act crazy so that I could find a way to escape. And he doesn't do that. And so we turn back in our Bibles to Psalm 34 because that's the context. This is written after David's escape. And it's entitled, A Psalm of David When He Pretended Madness Before Abimelech. That was probably more of a title than a proper name, that King Achish, who drove him away. Drove him away. I mean, he acted such as such a crazy person that Achish said, get him out of here. We don't even want him around, okay? Uh, that's you know, the dignity of the king, a future king of Israel. And so this psalm tells us uh, why David was not known for his trickery. You know, when you think about David and the people of Israel thought about David, they didn't say, boy, that David is sly as a fox. Don't try to pull anything over on him. That's not what you hear. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not the, oh, that David, man, if you ever want to know how to commit adultery, have an affair and get away with it, look what David did. That, that's not in here. If you ever get caught somewhere, follow David. He can show you how to fake being crazy. Insane. Doesn't do anything like that. And yet he is such an influential man. He's known as a man after God's own heart. And somehow in all of this, David learns between the escape from the king and the writing of this psalm that maybe, maybe I wasn't really trusting God. Maybe the way I was acting was saying, I'm not sure God could get me out of this one. Oh, he delivered me from the giant. But I'm not sure God can handle this situation. And again, as I said earlier, we find ourselves doing that same thing over and over, don't we? I, I know God took care of me in the past, but this is different. This is now. This is worse. This is more. This is bigger. This is something like that, as though anything could be too big for God. And we need to learn, like David did, there's got to be more to everything than just what we can do and what power we have and what our wits can tell us. In fact, um, I did a little research and I was interested to find just how influential David was in the Bible. 
um, I looked at how many times the names uh, came up. And let me just read it. I think it's on the slide here. Jesus is mentioned, of course, 1,281 times by name in the Bible. We would expect that. But you know who's number two? I thought it would have been Moses. I thought it would have been Abraham, maybe. But number two is David, mentioned 971 times, as opposed to Moses, who delivered them from Egypt, 803 times. Jacob, he's the one who uh, they changed his name, God changed his name to Israel. He became the founder of the nation, and the 12 tribes are named after his son, and the nation is named after him. He was called Israel. He's mentioned 363 times. Saul is mentioned 362 times. Aaron, the first high priest, is 342 times. And then, shocker, Abraham, 294 times, with 57 of those being Abram before his name was changed. Is that surprising? David, the adulterer, the murderer, this person who had acted like a crazy man is number two next to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his influence in Israel, his influence among the Jews, and his influence in the Holy Word of God. Very interesting to me. And so in this psalm, I find some things that I think give us the clue as to why David is not remembered for his sins, but he is remembered and he is influential, remembered as being a man of God. So, let's read it together and uh, let's think about all of this because trials and heartache and problems are Normal, as you think of Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord after his wife said, curse God and die. And yet we tend to think that we ought to have a trouble-free life and nobody in our family ought to get sick. Nobody ought to die. We should never grieve. We should never lose a job. And yet we go through those kind of things. And I think the key is how much faith do we really have in the promises and the presence of God? Now this is a high point for Job, but it's a Low point for David, but apparently <coughs> something has changed. So let's read the psalm. Psalm 34, and just three verses, one through three. And David says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. So what happened? If this is the context, as the title tells us, what happened between Achish and now writing this psalm? And somehow along the way, David does what we are supposed to do, and he learns something. He learns from his mistakes. He doesn't repeat his mistakes. In fact, we'll find uh, throughout David's life, he made some new ones. And at least we ought to do that. I think we're crazier than David pretended to be when we keep doing the same sins over and over and over as though we'll get different results. At least David kind of moved on in some things and he learned every uh, time he got caught and every time he was in trouble. And I think what we find in these three verses uh, tells us how David transformed his life 
from just being known as a crazy person who has problems just like us to being the great king of Israel and a man after God's own heart. Think about these things. Number one, you want to have influence? You want your influence to outlast you? Then number one, have a personal heartfelt conviction about something. When David says, I will bless the Lord at all times, that's something that is taking place in his heart. All times, good times, bad times, when he feels like it, when he doesn't feel like it, when it is applauded or when they're throwing spears at you, when the people think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and those other times when they're wanting to overthrow you. In fact, David's own son wanted to kill him. David's own son wanted to be the one to take over the throne. David's own son, Absalom, was coming after him. So David knew what it was like to have rough times and to have hard times, but the commitment of his heart was, I will bless the Lord at, and here's the key, all times. Not just in church, not just in Sunday school, not just when I wonder what people would think of me if I don't, not just when it's expected of me, but I will bless the Lord at all times. Again, <coughs> Job said, we take good things from the Lord, shall we not also take uh, bad things from the Lord? In other words, Job had more faith than David did at uh, this particular juncture of his life. But David was learning and David was growing. I will bless the Lord at all times. Now notice how personal it is. He says, I will. Not you will or you should or help me. He said, I will. And that's something that he really nails down. This is going to happen. That's something that has to happen in the heart. And I would encourage you, even now, to make a commitment as you think about your heart and its situation. It's so easy to stray. The hymn writer had it right when he said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And oh, it's so easy to complain. It's so easy to get angry. It's so easy to get frustrated. It's so easy to, well, act foolish and act crazy. Because here we are tonight, we sang that the Lord's name is glorious. Well, if that's true in here, then it's also true in rush hour. It's also true when somebody on the job has it in for you. It's also true whenever you are grieving. It's also, I mean, it's just true. And David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. You remember after David had murdered Bathsheba's husband and he had taken her as his wife and she was already pregnant. Remember that? And Nathan the prophet said, the child is going to die. And David fasted and he prayed and he wouldn't even wash himself or anything like that, seeking the Lord and begging for the life of the child. But you remember the servants looked at him and they said, the child has died and if he's acting like this when the child is alive, oh my goodness, what in the world is he going to do when he finds out the child is dead? And you remember they were afraid to tell him and then they go to David and they finally go we've got to tell him he's going to find out sooner or later and if he finds out we know then we're in big big trouble and so they tell David and to the shock of their lives David gets up cleans himself up takes a shower puts on some cologne 
combs his hair, and sits down to eat. And the servants say, look, you were fasting and you were not eating or doing anything when the child was alive. How come you're doing this now? And you remember that famous statement. He said, uh, basically, because the Lord has already spoken. We can't change this now. And I, uh, he can't come to me, but I shall go to him. And so David then did basically what he said in this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. That is a heartfelt condition and we find that even in this most difficult time, David expressed his faith and his trust and his praise in the Lord. Somewhere along the way, he learned something. Number two, not only make it in your heart to where the first thing you think about, whether something's good or bad, is praise to the Lord. I always think of Brother Steve Elkins uh, no matter what he went through and what was going on, anytime you talked to him, he would make this statement, the Lord has been kind. The Lord has been kind to me. Didn't that bless you when he would do that? And that was the first thing that would come to his mind. Well, that's what David is saying in here. I will bless the Lord at all times. I want that to be the first thing that comes to my mind no matter what I'm going to because God is always good and always righteous. Well then, if you really want to influence other people, it's got to go from your heart and it's got to come out your mouth because nobody can read your heart, nobody can hear your heart, but they can hear what you have to say. And Jesus told us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we want to get our heart right with God, like David would say in that first verse. And then we want our mouth to match up with what our heart commitment is. And that's where we get into trouble sometimes. So number two would be this. Publicly profess his praise. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, when it's continually in your mouth, that means other people are hearing it. And one of the things you want is for people to say, How can you be thankful in this situation? Well, then you got a great opportunity to share the gospel with them. How can you be praising God for what you just went through? Well, now you have a powerful way of praising God. This is something that ought to be in our life. Not just in the expected times. Yeah, your lost children, your lost neighbors, your lost co-workers, they're not surprised when you sing, Glorious is thy name, O Lord, here tonight. <clears throat> That's on the program. That's what you're told to do. But when you are on the job and there's somebody that is gunning for your position and they're lying about you and you get called into the big boss's office to give an account for something you didn't do and yet you're still able to thank the Lord, praise the Lord, trust the Lord, glorify the Lord. Now you've got people's attention. How can you do that when you are falsely accused? And this is what we are looking at and thinking about here. There's a word... <coughs> Panegyric. You ever heard that word? Panegyric. It's a, a word that basically means a public speech or published text in praise of someone or something. Panegyric. Have you ever heard that word? You learned a new word tonight. You got to learn something when you come to church. So say, 
Panegyric on three. Ready? One, two, three. Panegyric. Okay? Got it? Panegyric. That's a word that ought to be said about you or about me and our relationship with God. The ancient Greeks used to have these festivals, and this word comes from that. It was a little bit different, but same basic word, because they would get together and they would talk about the exploits of their heroes, their family members, or their gods and their goddesses. It was the idea of having like a praise service for somebody who had been a great general or somebody who was a great emperor or somebody who was a great intellect or somebody who had discovered something or invented something or whatever it might be. And they would get together and talk. It's one of the ways that they kept their history going. Okay? It'd be like all of us getting together and maybe we have this panegyric about Abraham Lincoln and we talk about him and we talk about how he lived and his honesty and his presidency and all of those kind of things. Or maybe George Washington or somebody like that. Or maybe it's your favorite baseball player or a football player. Or maybe it's somebody that you worked for. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe we would talk about those kind of things because that would make sure that everybody heard about it. Because we have a problem now that in America we don't really know our history when they talk to college students and they're not exactly sure who fought the Civil War. Seriously? Don't you wonder about that kind of thing? And uh, there was one I watched not too long ago on YouTube. They're kind of funny when you watch them. But uh, they, they weren't sure who won World War II. Isn't that something? And so we lose our history and that gives the enemies of our country and our culture the opportunity to say, oh, this country was just founded by rich, white, racist slave owners, and that's what it's all about. And so no wonder they want to have a revolution. No wonder they want to rebuild everything, that build back better or the great reset or whatever you want to call it, because they don't know or think that there's anything virtuous about our country at all because they don't know our history. You know, our families are the same way. You would be surprised at what your children don't know that you think they know about the family. Because you'll talk to them, and they may be up in their 30s or something, you say, hey, do you ever remember me talking about uncle so-and-so? And you'd be surprised how many times they'll go, yeah, uh, kind of. And then maybe they say, wasn't he the guy that worked in the carpet factory? No, he wasn't the guy that worked in the carpet factory. He worked in the auto industry. And then you're surprised at how much they got wrong. Why? Because... <coughs> We don't rehearse these things like they used to. And back in the days of the ancient Greeks and on through where they would do these things, they would rehearse their history. They would extol and praise their heroes. That's the kind of thing that we're supposed to do every time we come to church. That's the kind of thing we're supposed to do, as Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, with our children when you're sitting, when you're eating, when you're coming in, when you're going out, when you're lying down. Talk about the Lord. Talk about His Word. And we're supposed to be doing that. And uh, I want you to think about this word, panegyric, and I want you to think about that ought to be what we do in everything that goes on. The praise of God should always be in our mouth or coming out of our mouth. Number three, notice that it ought to be that in humility... We trust God 
to uh, use us to reach others. I know I don't have it worded exactly like that. But notice verse 2, my, sh- my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. You know, my soul likes to gripe. My soul likes to be negative and point out things. David said, well, then you need to change. Your soul needs to be boasting in the Lord. And how would David's experience with Achish, how would that have changed if he were actually trusting in, blessing the Lord, praising the Lord, and boasting in the Lord? Well, he didn't. He looked like a fool, and he made his God look like somebody who was weak and worthless. And that big pronouncement he had made before he killed Goliath sure wasn't true in his life when he is drooling down his beard and acting crazy, is it? And so uh, there is David thinking, well, I've got to do whatever I have to do, and I've got to do the best I can, and nobody can expect anything else from me. Well, excuse me, but the Lord does. The Lord expects us to act like Christians. The Lord expects us to act like we have a God that is powerful. The Lord expects us to act like a God who keeps his word. The Lord expects us to act like a God, to act like we have a God who is actually with us and the God who is going to deliver us. But instead we act crazy like the world and we give a false impression of all of that and uh, that's because we think it's all up to us. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to really consider this. Is there anything more prideful that a believer can do than to think that this situation is up to me to fix? I don't think so. And I think whenever we abandon our pronouncements, you come against me with a spear and a sword, and I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Boy, that's great, isn't it? Well, what happened to that when he was before Achish? Looked like he abandoned it. Looked like God wasn't quite up to par on all of this. David kind of had a moment of uh, pride. And even in his moment of pride, he still disgraced and humiliated himself. And uh, you can do the same thing. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. What if he had done that? What if we did that? Boasting in the Lord. Not boasting in us. Not boasting in our cleverness. Not boasting in how we figured something out. Boasting in the Lord. And then it says something. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Now I can't control who's humble and who's not. Only God can change a heart. But when I read that, I wonder how many times... Has there been a person around me that God had humbled their heart so that they could hear and would hear and maybe what came out of my mouth didn't really match up with what they needed to hear? Think that ever happens? Boy, I'm glad other people's eternity is not left up to me. I'm glad that God is able to save in spite of me and in spite of my poor witness or in spite of my lack of witnessing, I'm so glad. And I'm glad that my eternity was not left up to the faithfulness of somebody else. I'm glad that God sovereignly rules and overrules in all of that. And he'll, he'll move mountains to get the gospel to his people in spite of maybe our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness. And maybe sometimes when I witness, maybe I say all the right things 
but maybe I think it's up to me. Could I express this properly? Could I close the deal? Could I make the sale? I've been in evangelism courses where they taught us this is how you close the net. This is what you do. Only to find out later on, I don't make the sale and I don't close the net. That's the Holy Spirit's job. How arrogant. How arrogant was I when I thought that. And those people that taught me that. How arrogant must that be. And so we forget sometimes this is up to the Lord. And we just need to be humble and we need to boast in the Lord. And we never know who's listening. We never know what effect it's going to have when we talk about the goodness and the greatness and the power and the salvation of the Lord. You never know what might start somebody to thinking. You never know what might be used to remind them of something maybe that their grandma told them or an old <coughs> preacher told them or somebody else. The humble shall hear of it and they're going to be glad. This is the work of God. And then number four, invite others to join you and expect it to multiply. Oh, magnify the Lord. Those next two words are important. With me. With me. Join me in this. Hey, folks. I know that inviting people to church is not the gospel. So some people say, oh, I witnessed to 10 people. Oh, really? What did you do? Well, I invited them to Sunday school or something. Well, good. I'm glad you did that. I, I want you to do that. And we should be doing that. But that's not the gospel. That's not the same as a witness for Christ. But there's nothing wrong with it either. And what if you are having a person at work, they're asking you questions why do you do what you do? Why do you do it that way? And uh, why do you act this way? And you were to say, well, you know what? Come to church with me Sunday morning, and I think maybe you'll get some answers. Would there be anything wrong with that? No, I don't think so. Or maybe if you say, it's because I'm a follower of Christ, and I worship Him, and I love Him, and I would love for you to come and worship Him with me. Maybe it happens around your dinner table maybe your kids and your grandkids are there and somebody says here's what we learned in Sunday school but that doesn't make much sense to me and what if all of a sudden your dinner table turned into a worship service as you explained that and you not only explained it but maybe you demonstrated what it was to have faith in God and to put your trust in God and what if we started passing these things along to other people somebody said and something I was looking at today, that about 80% uh, of people who join a church drop out in the first year. If you can keep them longer than a year, you've got a good chance of keeping them. But in the first year, they need a friend and they need a job. Well, if we're not friendly, there we go. We play right into the devil's hand and they leave because nobody was talking to them. They didn't really feel all that welcome. They didn't feel like we wanted to invest in them. And we really didn't. We were too busy with our other friends, our good friends. And they need a job. And sometimes we get so busy doing the work ourselves, we forget that we're supposed to pass it on. We're to invite other people to join us. Well, David here in this Invite others to join you and expect it to multiply. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. It's not enough just that I do it. I want us to do it. And let us exalt his name and to do it together. So uh, I'll close by saying this. 
Our commitment to the Lord and our praise of the Lord, it needs to go from our mind, through our mouth, and to the ears of other people, opening doors for an aggressive and effective invitation to worship together. This is how this works. And this is how we have influence in our family that lasts even after we're gone. This is how we make memories that our grandkids will talk about, maybe to their grandkids, about us. But we got to do it from the heart to the mouth. And then in humility and in optimism as we express these things. And then we invite other people to be a part of us and what we do. And uh, so think about this. Think about these verses. Think about the story that goes with this. And what are you going to do? You can either act like a crazy person depending upon your own resources or you can do what David learned in Psalm 34 and have an influence, a positive influence on the other generations. Well, I've blown it. So did David. But you can overcome that. And that's the good news about all of this. You can overcome that if you will take these things and start living by what is in them. So let's uh, take our newsletter tonight. And let's uh, look at some of these things that are right there on the front page. Some things you need to be involved in. And certainly things you need to pray about. We've also got on the second page people that are needing our prayers. Uh, 